to big nerdy questions. Do you have your towel? Do you have your towel, I ask you? Because tonight is the 42nd episode of Big Nerdy Questions. And we would not be big nerds if we did not make our 42nd episode our special about the Douglas Adams masterpiece, the trilogy in five parts, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Joining me tonight from B&Q, we have Callie. Welcome back. Don't panic. And we have, from the Mostly Harmless podcast, Replicated Hat, we have Dr. Uh, Leah Brahms. Welcome to Big Nerdy Questions. Thank you for joining us here in Big Nerdy Headquarters. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Woohoo! Now, you may be wondering, Replicated Hat, it's a truck podcast. Well, yes, it is. But, as you might imagine... There is a big overlap between Loving Trek and Loving Hitchhiker's Guide. There's a big overlap on uh, sci-fi in general, right? Everybody's got a, their Venn diagrams, and mine just happens to be Star Trek and um, literature, any sci-fi lit. Which is perfect for this episode. And, uh, and I will get your opinions hopefully later down the road as we tackle the Mount Rushmore of sci-fi and fantasy authors. Uh, I'd like to get your opinion on that one. We're having that episode coming up in several months uh, I already know some of my picks, but I'd be intrigued to, see, to hear about yours. But that's another show. Uh, tonight, we are looking at The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and our question of the night is simply, why 42? We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, there's a lot of theories out there. There's only one truth, but we'll talk about a lot of things relating to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But first, I'd like for Dr. Leah to give us her big nerdy recommendation of the night. My big nerdy recommendation is uh, the Magic 2.0 series. Have you heard of this series? I have heard of it. I have not uh, read it yet, but I have heard of it. It's by Scott Meyer, who's the the author of the webcomic Basic Instructions, and uh, it's awesome. The, I'm not familiar with the webcomic, but the books themselves are uh, – it was first self-published, and then it became really popular, and he put out an audio book, and that's where I'm familiar with it. Uh, it's fabulous. It's about a young man who find, whose hobby is searching the internet, and whose hobby isn't that? And he finds this big file. It's so giant of code, and the first thing he does is search his name, and he finds his name and all his stats – his height, his, how how much money is in his bank account, and he fiddles with it a little, and it in it changes reality. So he figures out that the world is just code, and that basically makes you a magician. And like a lot of the other people have found this, he goes to the time and place where you can just be a magician, and that's you know the um back in the day and in. in uh, in like feudal Europe and, and he, they, he just lives as a magician and gets into, and it's a, it's humorous and it's uh, fun because it's about coding and it's fun because it's about computers. There's a lot of nerdy references and there's a lot of the books. So it, it's the gift that keeps on giving. So I recommend it in audiobook format. Nice. Magic 2.0. That is our big nerdy recommendation. That is a great one. Thank you so much, Dr. Brahms. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, and before we get into our discussion of the Hitchhiker's Guide, I think our listeners might want to learn a little bit more about your esteemed podcast, Replicated Hat. I have listened to several episodes of it, and I, as a trekker, have fallen in love with this show. It is clearly from a true trek lover's perspective, but it goes into really a lot of detail on some of our favorite and not-so-favorite episodes. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. It uh, basically spawned because my family was 
sick of hearing me talk about Star Trek, and I needed an outlet. And uh, my good friend, who is my friend in all nerdy areas, uh, he needed an outlet, too. So we use it as a place to talk about Trek, and basically we replicate a hat programmed to be filled with every episode and um, number of show, and we pull it out, and we do that show. We watch it that week, and we come back and talk about it and other, you know, related sci-fi topics, gaming, and uh, just like this podcast. Yeah. Uh, For example, in your Space Seed episode, since it relates to Khan, you guys talked about your favorite Trek villains. And I'm not going to spoil who it was, but I, I really liked your picks. Uh, Thank you. Very interesting. So if you are a Trek fan at all or just want to hear some interesting talk about Trek, I strongly encourage you, uh, B&Q faithful, to listen to Replicated Hat. It is well worth your time, and I guarantee that you will learn some interesting things about episodes that you may not have watched recently, but it'll make you want to watch them again. And you do not have to have watched the episode recently because they give you a great enough recap so that you know exactly what's going on, and you'll be like, oh, yeah! That is the scene where Khan's wearing fishnet. Uh, <laughs> it's, I always say it's like watching Trek, but from your car. It's, it's a safe way to watch Trek while you drive. I, I thought of it almost <laughs> like what happens if uh, Mystery Science Theater covered Star Trek. And it's really great. So I agree with you there. I mean, not that it's really great, but it's like Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I had never thought of that before, but I like it. It's really fantastic. So please, uh, B&Q faithful, after you finish listening to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy special, please download Replicated Hat. Now we shall go to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This episode is mostly harmless, so don't panic, but it will involve some deep thought. But don't worry, our thoughts are coming from hearts of gold. Uh, we're not going to be starving like Marvin in this episode, oh no. We are just like mice. We're going to click on all of the important things. So, so long, and thanks for all the fish scams as we listen to our discussion of Hitchhiker's Guide. And that's all the puns out of the way at the beginning. I think that pun was longer than the life of the whale. (laughs) Uh, So I'll open it to the floor uh, to you guys first. Uh, We will answer Y42 at the end. Uh, but trust me, it's kind of anticlimactic. So just play along for the ride. When you think of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I mean, we've all read this series. It's a fundamental part of science fiction culture. I would even go as far as to say it's a fundamental part of modern literature. What is the first thing you think of, uh, Dr. Brahms, when you think of Hitchhiker's? I think about the epiphany I had um, my junior year of high school when I was a huge fan of the book, and to me, it, they blew my mind. And so I signed up for a science fiction course, and I took it to my science fiction, uh, the, the teacher of the course, and he'd never heard of it. And I absolutely lost faith in the class, and it was my first like significant thought that adults are straight up muddling along in their careers in life because this is his job. And he has never heard of, like, at my point, the number one greatest piece of science fiction on in on the face of the planet. And uh, I just completely checked out of that class mentally after that. And uh, and that made me realize that, yeah, maybe, you know, adults don't know absolutely everything. Hitchhiker's Guide does make you a skeptic in many ways because it shows – Everything you think is sacrosanct, everything that you think is fundamental about existence, oh, no, not really. Uh, Everything can be thrown on its head. Uh, Callie, what do you think about 
Hitchhiker's Guide? Uh, it just reminds me of high school. I think it was the first real sci-fi book that I ever read. One of my friends was just from who was really into anime and like in uh, the theater club. She's like, here, read this book. And I fell in love with it. And then I met my best friend because he also had the full trilogy and let me borrow it. So we would just discuss it over lunch and at work and, and things like that. So it just reminds me of happy, fun times with friends in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it makes me think of that, too. Oh, the first time I read it, I like a, both of you, I was blown away by it. It wasn't my first science fiction, like real sci-fi book. That honor probably goes to 2001. Uh, because I had seen the movie and I wanted to read the, the novel version, which is completely different, but again, another show. Uh, but when I read Hitchhiker's Guide, I think it was the first novel that made me laugh out loud. Uh, I mean, I've read a few funny things before, but I mean, I, it was legitimately funny. I was engrossed by the characters, engrossed by the science fiction twists and turns. It's amazing, and it paints such a great picture. You can tell Douglas Adams wrote for radio and television as well because he really is fantastic at making you see what he wants you to see. Uh, And I think maybe that's one of the reasons that the movie wasn't received as well as some of the other parts of it because everyone he does think of Hitchhikers in a very, very specific way because it's so vivid that no matter what the film would have done, it's not quite what you're expecting it to be. Um, But as we as the three of us know, but the listeners might not, Hitchhiker's Guide is a trilogy in five parts. There are five books uh, written by Douglas Adams in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The first one is the titular Hitchhiker's Guide. Then they have the restaurant at the end of the universe, which you can find them on Yelp. Give them five stars. Uh, (laughs) Life, the universe, and everything. So long and thanks for all the fish. And then mostly harmless. That is the last one. So... Uh, it is, of course, Douglas Adams calls it a trilogy in five parts because of his humors. I want, I want to talk on, talk about a little next. Uh, Douglas Adams' writing style is, it reminds me a lot of Joseph Heller of Catch-22 in that there's constant wordplay, there's constant subversion of expectations, and in that subversion it creates both the humor and the plot. Because oftentimes in the Hitchhiker series, the biggest twist is that what you're expecting to happen doesn't or something monumental isn't for the best example of that being the unveiling of 42 as the answer to the life the universe and everything uh so what do you think is the funniest aspect of hitchhikers and i'll start with callie my favorite part of the book was just the life of the whale it's very short but it's one of the things i remember over time um going back to look at the book it is very is succinct but profound at the same time he's coming up with his own vocabulary which happens to align with our vocabulary unless it's being translated by the babblefish that we're unaware of because he doesn't have a long enough life for us to know um it's just it but it's also kind of sad in a way but still ridiculously funny it, it was i remember just feeling very sad but laughing at it at the same time and i guess it was like one of those first conflicted co- emotions at the same time that i, I really was refle- reflective about and aware of um and then you have the, the, the part about the potted plant, but <laughs> I thought, um, I just, it was, it was such a, I liked that he had an aside, he had a tangent to the book that was in its own piece, could stand on its own, but, you know, takes you right back into the plot and it kind of ties into the plot because they come across the well parts that, um, first, uh, entrance into the planet they're looking at. But it, he had nice, lovely asides that just make it wonderful, a wonderful piece of reading. Absolutely. Uh, Doctor, your thoughts? 
Um, what I remembered about it, my favorite part was that it was so incredibly quotable. Uh, all the little packets of quotes that you could memorize and, you know, put places that and it. They they were uh, you could. You could mesh them into conversation in other places, or I think I used one as my yearbook quote, actually, in high school. <laughs> I, I don't even remember what it was, um, but uh, I had read Kurt Vonnegut before I found Douglas Adams, and it was uh, it, it seemed like a more approachable Kurt Vonnegut yes. to me, and mm-hmm. just that it was just the the humor of it was just hit me so so hard, just in the right place at the right time in my life, like uh, the quote. Uh, the Vogon ships hung in the air much the way that bricks don't. <laughs> As a writer, this guy is a, he's a genius. He's just, uh, you can tell, yeah, for radio, you know, because it's packets of quotable information. So it, it's, and it hooks people. Absolutely. I wouldn't think that a lot of the elements of the Hitchhiker's Guide wouldn't be out of place in Slaughterhouse-Five. And right. the zoo in Slaughterhouse-Five would make perfect sense in the Hitchhiker's universe. Right. And actually, Marvin, the Mar- Marvin the robot, not the Marvin, was stuck <laughs> in a zoo for a while, kind of the, the same way. Yeah, poor Marvin. He's lived so many spans. And actually, that's my fun. like you said, Callie, con- conflicted. He's my funniest character, but also the saddest character. He is the version of the sad clown that I never knew about sad clowns until <laughs> after I read this. Uh, but he is such a perfect example of someone who realizes his career means absolutely nothing. He should be doing more with his life, but can't. He is stagnant. He is depressed. But he'll do it still because he's a good trooper. Uh, and in the end, he becomes one of the most important robots or beings in all of the history of creation and it's very fitting that Douglas Adams, spoilers, because we don't avoid spoilers here, ends so long and thank for, thanks for all the fish with Marvin's so quote-unquote death because he's lived longer than the universe three times over. Uh, yeah. But I love Marvin. I mean, And it's one of the things the movie got right was Alan Rickman voicing Marvin. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> when he first comes out, you're like, yep, that's Marvin. Um yeah, I love that character. He, I love him. He's one of my favorite robots in all of science fiction. Uh, and if Marvin and Data played poker together, I would be a happy man. Uh, <laughs> I don't you know who would Bender win. In the mix? Who? Bender. Yes, yes, Bender could be there too. Uh, Marvin's a, a, a genuine personality prototype, but he was a failed prototype. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he was kind of like a, a lore before like yes, it, he was they kind of like thrown away but but you know better than say if uh, he had just been a regular robot more memorable absolutely you know I, I think he is a take on some of those classic robots like um the ones from lost in space back in the 50s or the other 50s pulp sci-fi but like you said he's got the genuine personality um of eeyore Exactly. Eeyore. He's, he's the opposite <laughs> of K-9 from Doctor Who. <laughs> Very much so. Although, to be fair, the uh, K-2SO from Rogue One reminds me a little bit of Marvin in his disposition. I don't know if that was their intent, but there is an interesting crossover or a similarity, so to speak. Uh, but I wanted to ask about, uh, Callie, you mentioned the Babblefish. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Babblefish is the essentially the universal translator of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy universe. And so I was going to ask you guys, do you think having a Babblefish as a real thing would – how would it change your life to possess a Babblefish? Um, you know, I've thought about this even with Star Trek Universal Translator and Doctor Who's uh, – the TARDIS ability to translate um, between multiple languages. I I think it would be an asset. I, I've always been a fan of languages and being able to communicate with people. I think it would be awesome to not have the language barriers for the most part, minus a handful of idiomatic phrases. Um, I, I would assume it brings the world together, but I do know that Douglas Adam hints in the book that the uh, the discovery of the babblefish has led to more more and more wars um, over time. Even, like You would assume that mm-hmm. people being able to communicate with each other would resolve a lot of conflicts, but it just made it easier for them to communicate what their demands were, kind of. Yeah, that's why I um, think that's why I'm conflicted on it because I agree with you. My instinct says having the babblefish would help the co- help the cause, cause more yeah. peace and agreement. But Douglas Adams goes the complete opposite of go- of course subverting right. expectations. Uh, Doctor Brahms, what do you think? Well, there's actually a prototype of of, of the babblefish, the pilot earbuds that um, came out in. 2016, and I think you can pre-order them for $250. They're they're supported by some software that you stick them in your ear, and it and one of them pulls it in, and the other one pushes it out, and it it translates for you basically. So it exists. Wow. This is very much yeah. an existing thing. It's just like Google Translate, but it's you know you can hear it. Right. So and they can it, hear it. Or yeah, what you know, one person wears. One and another wears another, and uh, they're two hundred fifty dollars. That's amazing. So yeah, I don't know if they'll. <laughs> I don't That's know if incredible. they'll be. Well, Douglas Adams, pretty cool because if you think about it, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the internet. It's basically he. It's it's the it's internet. Good, yeah. It's a an ebook that tells you everything and fits in your pocket so you don't have to carry all that information around. Uh, and he thought of that in 1980, you know what I mean? So, so he's ahead of his time. I don't, it's, I don't know how well they'll work, but mm-hmm. it's the future's now. We're yeah. here, everybody. I would have assumed though, instead of splitting it between two people, that would use like the noise canceling technology because technically noise canceling headphones records what you're hearing and then calculates, um, calculates like a frequency or an algorithm to cancel out background noise. So I would assume that if you, you could do the same thing with translation, it would be a split set, like a split second latency. But if you had it noise canceled, you wouldn't hear what they were saying as much, or it would sound like when you have a translator over a a news clip or something. So I'm curious to see what they do in the future. um, Once they've tried it out with this split translator format. It's going to revolutionize international travel. That's for sure. I hope so. Yeah. And maybe you'll be listening to us and you don't speak English. Uh, so uh, if that's the case, a couple of years from now and you're listening to this show and don't speak English, thank you for listening to us despite the language barrier. And thank you, technology. <laughs> thank you, Douglas Adams, for thinking of Which, such uh, a cool idea. We actually, I should say, as a B&Q announcement, we had our first downloads from Japan this week. Right. All right. Uh, so Konnichiwa. to all of you uh, uh, listeners in Japan. I'm not sure Arigato. how many of you there are, but yes, arigato. Uh, we we certainly appreciate it. And maybe you knew that we're having anime episodes coming up soon. Maybe you knew, but if you didn't, I, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, it's the future is now with so many things in tech, which is, I mean, to bring it to 
a bigger problem in science fiction. So many problems with sci-fi now is technologies people were saying were going to be in the 2300s, 2400s, are already happening now. So a lot of younger people don't really like watching, for example, Next Generation or Deep Space Nine, because it looks, the technology's outdated. Look at the pads, for example, compared to what we have now. So take away warp drive and take away the transporter, and you pretty much are there already. There's an episode of uh, The Next Generation where a gal has a rolled up piano and she (laughs) unrolls it and plays it. And everyone's like, wow, that's amazing. You get all that sound from there. And it's like, yeah, that's old school now. Like a rolled up (laughs) piano. It's a piano stat bracelet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's really sharp. B sharp. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I didn't see that one coming. Um, that joke was a flat one. <laughs> oh, <gosh. Uh-oh. laughs> oh man, you should be positive and be, be natural. Um, we know the keys to podcasting, don't we? Before, I <laughs> 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 they do have tattoos now that you can scan messages in, and I think you can kind of play musical notes off of your tattoos. So, wow. like, like the Japanese road that you drive over that plays a song with your tires. Yeah, like that. Yeah. That That's is, pretty cool. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I might rent out my forehead as a QR code with henna for money. Scan my forehead <laughs> and uh, download the podcast. Oh, my gosh. I don't <laughs> think I'm ready for that. <laughs> I mean, if basketball players can have an ad on their jersey, we can have that, I suppose. Uh, but... The technology is great, but there's so many fundamental questions that come up in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and one of them is the plot that goes throughout the whole story, the whole, whole series is that Earth has to be demolished for several reasons throughout the series. At one point, Earth is being demolished for a highway. At one point, Earth is being demolished because its program is over. It was designed as a program, and the program is complete. Uh, at one point, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Mark II itself wants to make sure that Earth is gone. Uh, but one of the things that happens is the title So Long and Thanks for All the Fish comes from the fact that the dolphins, who are actually just as sentient as we are, have heard the warnings and have bolted and left. But <laughs> humanity was too dense to actually get the warnings. So, hypothetically, if an alien race was trying to warn us to vacate the premises... Do you think that humanity as a whole would understand the warning? Why or why not? And ba- and we would band together and spend our resources on uh, getting the heck out of here? Exactly. Me? Do you think we would be able to understand the warning or would it be beyond our understanding? And if we understood it, would we actually follow it? Kelly? It, yes. Yes. Um, so I was reading one of... Uh, Neil Stevenson's novel Sevens is, if, if I'm saying it right. And, you know, the moon gets cracked and they realize that it's going to cause uh, some some huge tidal waves. It's pretty much going to wipe out all of civilization. And they band together to build onto the International Space Station and add all these attachments. And basically, almost like Hunger Games style slash Handmaiden style, figure out who are going to be the most fertile people and send them up to the space station to help them survive. So I, I think if... If they, if we got to the point where we could prove that yes, it is inevitable, Earth will be destroyed. I think we could band together and do it. The problem is coming to a consensus and agreeing. 
um, and believing that what they got is true and also assuming that we have the technology to decode the warnings um, without the advance of battle. Yeah, that's the part that I'm worried about is, I mean, in the Hitchhiker's Guide, they've been sending warnings, but we don't have the technology to receive it. Now, obviously, if they're trying to communicate with us, hopefully an alien race would be smart enough to actually use something we have, like radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, but say they're sending the signal subatomically in another kind of in another quark or something, that that's their standard form of communication that we can't find. Or what if they only communicate via scent, but it's a smell that hmm. we can't recognize? You know, I, I imagine even if they could uh, communicate through scent, they could also, if they can communicate, period, they've got to have some sort of science. And if they're getting over here or they're, you know, we're, they're going to have some math and some science and they could communicate through basic maths and basic mm-hmm. science, just even enough for like, oh, we're here, you know, uh oh, we better work on our communication skills with these guys uh, and figure out what the heck they want. Even if it's just, hello, may we smell you <laughs> or if it's. You know, that sounds like a Douglas Adams quote, by the way. Hello, <laughs> may we smell you. It's either a Douglas Adams quote or a rejected Tinder profile. <laughs> oh, will you come to my by house? Doug. I'll smell you. By Doug from up, yes. <laughs> Stephen Hawking did say that we have about 100 years to colonize stuff because we only have about 1,000 years left on the planet. So in a way, that's a warning from within, you know, but maybe it would take a third party to uh, rally um together uh, against or to feel like okay well there's Mm -hmm. all of us versus them instead of you know us versus us which is what's going on now we're all in this together now uh isn't that kind of how they finally settled on world peace in the star trek universe when we realized it was world handshake day this past week and i actually shared the handshake of zephram cochran and the vulcan first contact you know it's only it's only about a like Something like 15 years until Zephyrin Cochran is born. I know. So Who's going to be the person who has a baby that year? I, so let's make a pact now. If any of the three of us either have a child or know someone will have a child, 15 years from now, we have to convince them to name the male Zephyrin Cochran. I would absolutely do that. That's how much I super. like Star Trek. I would name my, my dog's name is Worf. Yes. I would absolutely <laughs> name my child Zephyrin Cochran. <laughs> All right. Um, I think you have a better chance, but I'll, I'll pencil it in. I'll have to convince the other Sarah. It's really expensive yeah. for us. Yeah. yeah well, I yeah. mean, I'm not planning on it, but I'm planning on convincing someone who is planning on procreating anyway to name their child Zephram Cochran. Got it. We'll start it. A, a Kickstarter campaign so that 15 years from now, somebody will be given all the money from the Kickstarter to do this. Okay. For the law point. of averages, somebody has to be named Zephram. Yeah. If just somebody like, names their child Beat Duke, there's got to be a Zephyr Cochran. Just like there's got to be an Arthur Dent out there. Right. And a Ford or Prefect. Or a Ford Prefect. Yeah. That, do you, when you read the book for the first time, you, I, you had said that you spent time in the UK, but uh, did you understand the joke behind his name? Because I didn't am I, when I read the book the first time, and it took a while to understand that... Uh, <sighs> Yes and not quite. The only thing I applied it to, I actually did it. I, I thought Harry Potter stole from it twice because there was a Ford in like a Ford Angela and like the prefix in the Potter house. That was all I could think of. And I didn't actually think of the car. They're like hall monitors, right? A prefix. Right. Yes. Got but it. no, I didn't. I understood that it was a car, but I, I associated more with Harry Potter than anything else. Same here. I, I didn't really know until I looked up the character. 
and then I realized, oh, it's also a car. Um, so there are some jokes. I mean, the third book is basically built around jokes around cricket, which <laughs> right. goes over my head completely uh, yeah. as a non-cricketer. There's someone who's actually watched YouTube videos on how to understand cricket and still does not understand cricket. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've so, had, yeah. Oof. I've had several people try to explain to me the game of cricket and the fact that it can last for several days. Um and it still makes it's kind of like baseball, but not really like baseball. It can That's last for can. several days. Yes, a it cricket can, match can I last can. for several days. They they do go to sleep, but it, they come back and restart because uh, there's no set. I mean, again, I don't really know the details, but I've known there are international matches that can go like three or four days, and, and, and yeah, a single think, inning can last several hours. Yeah, the longest game of cricket was nine days between. South Africa and England. At some point, the people in the stands have to, you know, like the, they can't come back the next day. So True. they're just watching the middle of a game. That's interesting. So let me say just the reason that I was trying to learn it as a, I'm a day job as an archivist and historian. My area of expertise is post-colonial research, decolonization in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And one of the biggest aspects of the colonial relationship in the countries that are English uh, or were English, is cricket. Uh, India, Pakistan, South Africa, they play a lot of cricket. So I was trying to understand the role of cricket in the culture. It is easier for me to understand the Marxist, neo-Marxist theoretical implications of neoliberal market shifts in Pakistan <laughs> than to understand the rules of bloody cricket. Uh, so that third book just went over my head completely, at least that part. But I still love the book, but... Yeah, this is very much a British trilogy in five part. You can tell an Englishman wrote this book, uh, but that's not a problem. That's a very good thing in this case because it's. I love the witty the wittiness of it. I don't know if it could have come out of an American mind just as well, but it's amazing. Agreed. The, the, when I mentioned the the warning, the converse of it was that the dolphins left, mm-hmm. and in a lot of sci fi works, including Hitchhikers. Dolphins are usually speculated to be the next creature, if anything, that's going to evolve on Earth to be sentient. So put on our science hats for a minute. I know you guys have more scientist backgrounds than me. Is it plausible that dolphins could eventually involve intelligence similar to human intelligence? Or is that just a a science fiction trope? I know they've done several studies and research on the... Uh, sentience of, of dolphins. I know there was one study where they were trying to teach them how to speak. I don't know how well that went. I, I think there was some repetitive, there was some conditional um, behavior mechanics they tried to use, but it didn't quite fan out. I think mm-hmm. that it's gone beyond science fiction. I think there are people who are trying to figure it out. Um, but I mean, I, I think it just goes up to which animals are the most trainable. I think any of the most trainable animals are going to be closest to yeah, a Dog, pig, cat, horse, then also chimpanzee and gorilla because they can be trained. Even though they're not domesticated, they can be trained. Look at Coco and can sign. Uh, I think she taught her kids sign. But what about raccoons? Because they are scary, tricky little creatures. And they have the thumbs, the correct thumbs. They They do. They can open cages when they they have. Yeah, they can. There was a story in like uh, Guadalupe where these people put up an electric fence around a watermelon patch and they cut down or they knock down a tree branch so they can climb over and not get shocked. Like 
they're sneaky little creatures. I think we keep their eye on Well, just like octopi. I mean, there was the octopus in that aquarium in New Zealand that went over the top and escaped out of the hatch of the aquarium into the ocean next door. And they can watch the the octopus in the other tank learn something, and they learn by watching. Right. And they can uh, do the same task. And it's I mean, yeah. scary. And, and Douglas Adams did tell us that mice are actually super intelligent. No! <laughs> <laughs> At least these specific mice uh, in the end of the first novel were incredibly intelligent. Right. And and they had paid for the next, the Mark II, Earth Mark II, to be built. Yes. Uh, so one of the things from the first book that stands out to me is the idea of poetry as torture. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. Um, it, so, yeah, the, the Vogons, there's so many interesting races in The Hitchhiker's Guide that stands out. Maybe because they're the first alien race we really see in detail. It just stands out so much to me. But I, I love the idea that their punishment in this bureaucratic society is that you listen to horrible poetry. Maybe it resonates with me because I work for the government. <laughs> 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 but, uh, wow. And I love the fact that Arthur Dent thinks it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah. Because human poetry is worse. Right. Uh, just one of those things, like, again, Douglas Adams playing with our expectations. Uh, so I do, we're going to now talk about 42. Before I talk about why Douglas Adams chose 42, I do want to ask you guys perhaps the ultimate question of this episode. We're not going to try to speculate on what the ultimate question is in this episode, because that would require us to build a computer and come back in five and a half million years after the planet has evolved. We're not going to do that. would require some more deep thought. But if you were offered the chance to know the question and the answer, to life, the universe, and everything, knowing all the implications of what that means, would you take it? Would you want that much knowledge, Dr. Brahms? Uh, no, I don't think I would, because I'd be afraid it would be depressingly simplistic, like a two-digit number. <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to know. That would just be... Uh, I, I don't think I'd want to know. I'd, it would be sad if it was, as I suspect, not that important at all. I agree. I think it's it's one of those things where do you know there's situations where the build up and the expectation is better than the reality? Yeah, uh, sure. Christmas. Like roller coasters. Roller coasters. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the build up to it is fantastic, and then it's like, oh. Um, so, uh, Callie, would you take the opportunity to learn this amazing knowledge? Absolutely, because as we know from the Doctor Who, Who universe, that seeing. All the implications of time and in history makes you a time lord. And, of course, I want to be a time lord and build a TARDIS and run around time and space. Yes. So, yes, I would definitely give the, the answer and the question. Yes. Well, that, that makes sense. You, you are the bad wolf. Why? Why, yes, I am. Well done. I think I would just steal the heart of gold to, to, uh, to learn all the implications of time and space. Just because I'm, I'm not familiar with the Doctor Who uh I would uh, love to use the improbability yeah, drive. I'd be afraid to use it, but I would love to press the button and see where it takes me. But what if the heart of gold is the heart of the TARDIS? Oh! That, that, has that been thought of before, or are you a genius? Douglas uh, Adams, I have now? no idea. Douglas Adams was a writer for classic Doctor Who before he wrote Hitchhiker's Guide. Interesting. And and the heart of gold he wrote is for the Tom fastest. Baker. I'm it's telling the you. Fastest... Uh, 
ship in sci-fi, but what is the speed of the TARDIS? Is it similar? There really isn't a speed it's because a it speed. just instantly goes to a point in time and space. So it's same not, same deal. It's not instant. It's not quite instant because I, I want to say uh, that starship could go any distance, but it couldn't go any time, and the TARDIS can go at any time. That's true, yeah. I, I think it can go any time because the restaurant at the end of the universe is at the yeah. end of the universe. Yeah. Of the end of the yeah. universe. And the TARDIS made it to the end of the universe, too. So maybe the Master was waiting in the restaurant that whole time at the end of the universe. Maybe the Master is Marvin. Oh! oh. <laughs> the Master is parking cars waiting for him. <laughs> no, but seriously, the Heart of Gold is a TARDIS. It makes perfect sense. You have uncovered, Callie, the fan theory of all British science fiction. Reward yourself with some nice tea. Ooh, I could do with some English breakfast tea right now. So, well done. Hip, hip. Hooray. Uh, Yay. You're a grand prize. You get to go see the World Championships of Cricket. Oh, I don't think I have enough time on my schedule. (laughs) Hop round to the pub to get yourself a celebratory pint. Yes. Yes. Or a pangalactic gargle blaster. Yes. Even better. And you get to send one of your worst enemies to a Vogon poetry reading night. Complete. With intergalactic bongos. So that's how that's, I'm going to send Jar Jar, of course. Yes! <laughs> Jar Jar. Actually, I bet Gungans would love Vogons. They'd probably get along <laughs> probably just fine. They probably would. <laughs> uh, so, I've been keeping you in suspense all episode, listeners. Why 42? Well, the answer is very depressingly anticlimactic. Douglas Adams knew that he wanted... The, the answer to the life and universe and everything to be a number, a simple number. He was in his garden one day and said, 42 will do, and that <laughs> is that. Wow. That Wouldn't is, zero one have been profound? Much more yeah, profound than that. That is the yeah. honest to God, Douglas Adams said it himself, that's the honest answer. There is no meaning to the choice of 42. Despite the fact that 42 has a lot of mathematical properties that are fairly <laughs> unique, Despite the fact yes. that 42 in binary is 10101, uh, mm-hmm. it's got prime factors. There's so many things that it could have been. It could have been a reference to something that had 42 parts, but no. It literally six, means nothing. And there's meaning to the to it having no meaning. Absolutely. The question that, that is unanswerable. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know, but I wrote it on everything I ever owned, and uh, every every time I've ever played a, a weird sport or had to be a weird number for something, it's I beg for 42, and I'm like, and they're like, yeah, nobody else asked for that, and I'm like, are you serious? Exactly. Well, as you see it on our Twitter profile. But you know you're not going to get along with the whole team. Yeah. We have 42 in our, in our profile on Twitter, and hopefully, at some point down the road, I would like to get B&Q t-shirts, and I already have a design in mind where 42 is on the back as a jersey number for our podcast. Nice. Uh, so, I'll buy one. Uh, There's a little Venn diagram. It's like life, the universe, and everything, and 42 is in the center of it all. Yes! Math geeks unite! No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> represent? Ooh. Being imaginary, we're just irrational. Boom. No. Uh, <laughs> that was a fraction of humor. Oh. Uh. But like I the decimal, I'm missing the point. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> How many uh, people's uncle are you? <laughs> <laughs> Too many to count. 
too many to count. I, you do have a lot of nieces and nephews. I do, so actually. I have, I have uh, six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because your quotient goes up. You get a plus one to, to yes. puns every time you, your sister or brother has a baby. No, it's just yeah. when I play D&D, I always roll 20 on puns. So it's um, <laughs> Rolling match 20s. Woohoo! Make it rain. If they had D&D in the casino, I'd be a rich man. No, uh... <laughs> but on that note, guys, uh, what are your final thoughts on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I guess I'll put it a different way. If you can say in... Two sentences. Why someone who's never read the series should read it. Why should they read it? Because it's one of the most important pieces of science fiction ever, and because it's hysterical. I would say, imagine if Doctor Who and Futurama had a baby, and they wrote it down in a book. It is the best work of art there is for science fiction. Exactly. And I think I'll just say, if you call yourself a nerd... You owe it to yourself to read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is one of the fundamental works of modern nerd life, which is why it had to be our topic for our 42nd episode. And uh, Callie and Dr. Brahms, thank you so much for making this special truly special. I appreciate (laughs) it immensely. Uh, And we just have one piece of business to take care of, and that is we have to eliminate Jar Jar Binks. Well, you see, the Empire decided that Naboo was going to have to be removed to allow for interstellar highway for the Death Star. Uh, Everyone else on Naboo got the warning, but Jar Jar did not, because Jar Jar was listening to the audiobook of Vogon Poetry 101. And as he looked up and saw the Death Star coming to Naboo to blow up his planet, he simply said, Misa screwed, and the planet is gone. Jar Jar, death by infrastructure project. Jar Jar Binks is now gone. So for Callie and for Dr. Brahms, one more time, replicated hat podcast. It is amazing. If you are a trekker or think you might be, uh, listen to replicated hat. It is well worth your time. This is Josh from B&Q signing off and telling you, Do not forget your towel. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Good night, everybody.